everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker is here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Hello and welcome aboard. Glad you are here today. Hey, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to make sure that you have heard me shouting from the rooftops over on my social accounts that I have a new book coming out and it is so exciting. I rolled out the cover and the title and the vision and it is called Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. Oh, it means so much to me and I'm so excited about it. And there's some really cool signed editions up for grabs right now. So just letting you know, Um, you can head over to any of my social accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Insta. They're all, they're all up over there and be uh, in the know. Of course, the easiest way to stay in the know about anything, but it's definitely including the book and all this cool stuff that goes with it is to be an email subscriber. I call them my EFs, my email friends. Um, So over at jinhatmaker.com, you can sign up in like five seconds and you'll be glad that you did. We pack, pack our subscribers with all kinds of good stuff. I mean, you get first dibs on everything, of course, and um, first glimpse and insider info, just all of it. So uh, just head over there, be an email, be an email subscriber, be an email friend. You'll be happy that you did. Speaking of fierce, oh my gosh, we are in a series with some faith icons and my guest today is literally the definition of fierce. Like, I think that's probably her middle name. Um, this is actually her second time on the show. She, I think she's only my, I think she's only my third guest to ever make a repeat appearance. And her original episode is one that people talked about forever. Uh, it was one of our most downloaded episodes and it just kept going. It had this shelf life because everyone kept sharing it. Um, everyone kept listening and then re-listening to it and re-listening to it and then sending it around um, because she is so interesting and so provocative and so smart. So in the first episode, by the way, she told us all about her family's deep history in America. Some of it is slaves. Boy, she, she just made my brain buzz with so many, so many incredible insights. Of course, I'm talking about Lisa Sharon Harper. <sighs> Talk about an icon. She's been at this work for a really long time. She has longevity as a prolific speaker and writer and activist. I mean, everywhere from Ferguson to New York. Germany, South Africa, Australia, Brazil. Lisa leads trainings that basically increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a more just world. I mean, talk about a mission. She's the founder and president of Freedom Road, which is a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. By the way, we're going to talk about exactly what that means today in our nation. Um, and she, by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding and commitment and action. Plus, she's a brilliant writer. I mean, her work has appeared literally everywhere. Uh, a truly gifted author. In fact, her book, The Very Good Gospel, was a 2016 book of the year by Inglewood Review, um, which we talked about at length the first time she was on the show. Meaningful. Gosh, she's such a good... Well, by the way, let me just tell you this real quick. 
I don't know what you're doing right now. You're like running or you are in the grocery store or you're on your commute or doing laundry. I'm not sure what the thing is, but let me tell you what you actually are. You're at church because Lisa is about to take you to church. Um, you're about to get some preaching and a word and a strong word at that. I mean, when I say fierce, I mean fierce. And so you just need to buckle up and, um, and get ready because this conversation was, whoo, baby. Okay. We need her right now. We need her leadership. I'm so happy to bring her to you yet again on the For the Love podcast. So you guys help me welcome Lisa Sharon Harper. I am delighted and honored to welcome my friend, Lisa Sharon Harper, back to the show. Thank you for saying yes a second time. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. It's so, so great to be back with you and also with your listeners. You guys yeah. are fabulous. I've met you all over the country. I love you. Yes, they are. And they loved you. And <laughs> we were just talking before recording that I've had, I think, two, I think I've had two repeat guests on mm. the podcast. And so you are in this very tiny handful of wow. repeaters. And, um, I was, I was mentioning this to you, but you know, your first episode on here was so, so provocative mm. and interesting and important. And it's still one of our most talked about episodes. And so thanks for coming back in. You know, we're, it's 2020. I mean, here we are. What in the we world? We are here. We're here. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. What a We've year. We've been waiting for this moment for like at least three years. <laughs> I'm telling at least three years. Oh, so Lisa, I was just sort of high leveling, um, your very rich experience and your massive credentials to my listening community. So I wonder if we could kind of start here. I'd like to hear where your work has taken you lately. What kinds of progress have you seen that has actually been encouraging to you in such sort of a wonky, weird time? Um, and then like on the opposite, is there a place right now where you're working, where you're advocating that you are kind of feeling blocked? Like what's, what's hard right now? Okay. So starting with the good and then going to the blocked. <laughs> Great. Let's do that. Um, I mean, I'd say that I think the, the biggest piece of progress that I think we've seen ironically has not necessarily come because of our organizing. I think hmm. the biggest piece of progress we've seen is that the foundational nature of white supremacy in hmm. our nation has become obviated. What, we, what we've seen through Trump's um, uh, policies and their outcomes, for example, several people dying on our southern border in detention centers and also on the Mexican side because they were not able to get help. Um, we see the, the impacts of, of that kind of policymaking when taken to its extreme, which is what Trump has done. He's taken GOP policies to their extreme. And so I think that what that what's what that has done, taking it to its extreme and seeing the result, has actually caused a lot of people who I who call themselves evangelical, who before Trump, you know, called themselves evangelical, um, went to Bible study every week, have small group and prayer groups and sing-alongs at church and you know, summer camp and youth camp, and they went to Young Life and they did InterVarsity and Campus Crusade. It has caused them 
to say, wait a minute. <laughs> so I, I actually, what I have seen since the last time we talked, what I've seen is I've seen a lot of people, not just leaders who were doing the question asking like yourself after the 2017, you know, inauguration day, a lot of evangelical leaders were, to, were asking, how did we get here? But I think now a lot of people in the pews are, are beginning to realize, whoa, yeah. what have we done? Right. So yeah, totally. I, I, I have the same experience. I appreciate you saying that because yeah. I, I'm, I'm an interesting, I'm in, embedded in a world with a lot of ideologies all around me. So I don't have a, just a through line in my in, entire community. And I see some of the real same, like un, deep uneasiness and yeah. really yeah. good questions that are important to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I do see that as a net positive, ultimately, yeah. um, even though it's it's such a hard way to get there. It is, right? I mean, we have to, unfortunately, there's got, well, I don't know that this has to be the case. It doesn't have to be. We can always just choose the right thing. Yeah. We can always just choose repentance. We can always just yeah. choose goodness and beauty and truth. But sometimes when we don't, the only way back to ourselves is to understand the cost of our sin, to understand the cost of of what we're choosing, maybe the illusion of goodness that we've chosen as a as opposed to the actual actual good. That's a great right? way to put it. What's hard yeah. right now? I think that honestly, I think the thing that's the hardest is the is how overwhelmed everybody feels. Ugh, it's so People real. are tired. It's so real, and it's only going to get worse this year. Yes. We're so fatigued. Yes, like I think. People are like the folks who are actually fighting the battles are incredible. It's literally this current administration is throwing the kitchen sink at the world, literally. Mm-hmm. And it's only for one purpose. It is to win. It's right. not it's not for an, uh, like to win a particular thing. Sure. It is simply to win. And when the mm-hmm. only goal is to win, you actually are in warfare. Mm-hmm. We are literally in the middle of a political war and therefore all bets are off. The truth doesn't matter. Um, ethics doesn't matter. Any and none of that matters. And so as a result, we are actually in the middle of a war and that's why we're so exhausted. And recently there've been actually a number of us that have begun to realize that we are so tired and, and at the same time, and I don't mean people of color, I mean just people who are in the struggle um, here in DC and we've started to actually meet and kind of become church for each other, which is wonderful. It's been so good. Um, and prayer and um, sharing connection. I have come to understand that the heart of it all, the meaning behind it all, the goal of it all is to be reconnected. Hmm. That's the whole project, hmm. the whole thing. It is about reconnecting to God, reconnecting to self, reconnecting to others, reconnecting to this to the earth and to the rest of creation. And as we become reconnected, that is what brings shalom. That's what it's all about. And so if that's what it's all about, it's not actually just about defeating Trump or, you know, getting this policy passed and all. Then what what it looks like to fill myself in the struggle is in the midst of the struggle, on the battle line, in the march, to 
be connected, to mm. make the, the choices, to connect with those who are around me at that time, to make the choices to go walk and actually connect with nature and connect with God. And that, like, in that's how I get filled. It's not, I'm not taken away from my my sense of joy or peace or shalom by going out and marching or protesting or writing that piece. Those are all methods of connection. Hmm. Uh, the reason I love that you're saying that among many things that I could start listing, but what I love about that is the possibility that it holds. Because as we kind of survey the landscape right now, and we look, I mean, even just at, let's just say our American culture, but really the whole world, um, we're never, I mean, you know, we're never, we're not ever going to find a place where ideologically we all agree or, or that we understand how to solve complicated problems in the same way. You know, we have different ideas on that. We have different perspectives, but, but connection is Mm -hmm. always a possibility. Yeah, that's a possibility anywhere between anyone. And so that to me holds inside of it real potential for healing um, and growth and renewal. Whereas I think sometimes some of us engaged in the battle are just constantly trying to get the other side to see our way. (laughs) And like, why can't this make sense to you? And in some cases, that's fair, because we're talking about matters of like justice in life. But but when when I frame it up the way you just said it, and I think, what was the potential for connection here? Now I've got now there's possibility. Yes. Like, now because, I feel like that's a that's a path. Exactly. And the thing is, is that you know, so so when people ask me, you know, you know, what what how do you choose your political agendas that you're going to you're going to choose? I am. My, how do I choose? I'm asking the question. How do we create a politics? Of love. How do we create a politics? In other words, how do our decisions about how the polis will live together create a more connected polis? That's good. Create a polis, a people who are more connected to each other, Mm. owning each other's fates more. You know what I mean? Totally. And that's how we were created to be in an inter, a radically interdependent web Mm. of love. Golly, wouldn't that just, that would change the whole world. Well, now it it really the whole world. Yes. Listen, over the years, I've learned two things I want from a shoe. I want them to be cute and I want them to be comfortable. Lucky me, I found a new to me brand that delivers on both fronts. You've probably heard of Rothy's. They make the perfect shoes for life on the go. They are stylish. They are comfortable. They literally go with everything. Um, Jeans, dresses, yoga pants, whatever. They come in the most fun designs. You can add a great pop of color to like a really polished outfit. And yay for this, super sustainable because they're made for, I could not possibly make this up, recycled water bottles. I got a pair of Rothy's sneakers and they are camouflage. I mean, they are so cute. I feel like I could put them on at the crack of dawn and literally wear them until midnight. And they would never one time be uncomfortable. So head to rothys.com slash for the love. Let me spell that for you. It's R-O-T-H-Y-S.com slash for the love. So it is comfort. It is style. It is sustainability. 
So one more time, head to rothys.com slash for the love to get your new favorite shoes today. Okay, guys, back to the show. I want to pivot um, because I read a piece that you wrote and I, it's so, it was so good, Lisa, and so thought provoking. And it was kind of about your changing relationship with the Bible Oh, and yeah. this sentence. So zip, it zinged me. You said, Jesus is no longer my boyfriend. That's hilarious. He is my, <laughs> he is my liberator. Yeah. Uh, that's something that I've talked at length um, with Pete Enns on this show about also. Mm-hmm. And I am interested to hear you talk about this. I yeah. would love to hear more about your experience here, um, what you meant, um, where you're going, what this looks like in your life. What I've come to understand is that what it means to be human is actually to be equally called and with the capacity, created with the capacity to exercise stewardship of the world. And so what it requires then for us to be radically connected again, to be reconnected, is to recognize the equal call and capacity of all to exercise stewardship of this world, to exercise agency, to shape the world. Really, the good news is that Jesus did not just come to live in my heart and love me, Hmm. right? To go out on dates with me to Starbucks. Right. (laughs) But Jesus came to liberate the image of God on earth. Jesus came to confront the powers that are hell bent on crushing the image of God on earth. And that means me and my third great grandmother, Leah Ballard, and my mother, and my father, and my brother, that the powers have been dead set against the thriving, against the exercising of stewardship and dominion, particularly around, well, actually, the powers in our world, in our time, in our era, and by era, what I mean is the last maybe thousand years, um, have been the power of white patriarchy. Right. And I know that that sounds like really academic-y to some people, and it might actually sound, you know, oh, you just put yourself in a liberal camp. No, Hmm. no. What I'm talking about is actual laws and policies that have been, that were put on the books by white people of European descent, men, right. in order to protect their own thriving right. at the, not only the founding of the country, but the founding of the colonies. Mm. And those laws and structures were not changed or taken off the books That's when right. we became a nation. And they only became more entrenched. And so when I say Jesus is my liberator, not just my boyfriend, in fact, he's not my boyfriend. Yes. He never came to be my boyfriend. Yeah. He was here to liberate the image of God, the image Mm. of God. And that included the image of God in Brown Mary, his mom, and the image of God in Brown Mary Magdalene, and Mm. the image of God in Brown Peter, and Brown Paul, and Brown everybody. In fact, there's only one person of European descent who has a speaking role in the entire Bible, Mm. and it's Pilate. Hmm, great point. The one who put him on the freaking cross. Yeah. Wow. Now, what am I saying? I'm not saying people of European descent put Jesus, you know, like yes. are, are, are good for that. That's all they're good for. That's not what I'm saying, folks. Right. Don't write me about that. That's not right. What I'm, about. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is the Bible is not a Western document. That's right. 
And it's not a document that was written from the social location of empire. That's right. It was written from a social location of the oppressed, the social location, the entire thing, the whole thing, including Mm. David's um, Psalms Mm. and all of the passage and and, and the Song of Solomon. Um, The stories of Solomon and David were written about and by a king Mm. of a dinky little kingdom that kept getting sacked by empire. That's right. (laughs) They were not building an empire. They were a dinky little kingdom that God didn't even want them to build. God said, don't build a kingdom. I am your king. You don't need a king. Uh, In fact, if you do, you're going to have to build tall buildings and enslave your people. Don't do that. But they did it because they wanted to be like everybody else. And what does that cause them to do? It caused them to dominate each other. It caused them to break the connections between God and themselves and, and each other and the land. And so what does it mean then? What is the good news of Jesus? What I've come to understand about this brown, colonized, indigenous man is that he came as the God-man, the king of the kingdom of God to confront the empires of this world that are hell bent on actually waging war with God, on waging war because what they've done is they have desecrated the image of God on earth. And anybody who knows anything about ancient cultures, then you know that the image of the king is supposed to be a marker of how of the flourishing of that kingdom. And so where you have desecrated images, it's an indicator there's war going on in that land. So we have desecrated images on our southern border. We have desecrated yes, we images in our jails. The fact that we have so many jails yeah. is an indicator that we are at war Hmm. with God. Hmm. Well, I guess you're just going to preach today on the podcast (laughs) and I am here for it. Um, Let me ask you this. A a lot of your work at Freedom Road is about shrinking the narrative gap. Um, Can you explain what that means and what it might look for us specifically in 2020? Oh, that's good. So shrinking the narrative gap basically means that there is a gap between the narratives, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and how we got here and the truth. Yes. <laughs> like of actually what happened. Yes. Uh, and there's also gaps in, in different people groups' stories. In fact, in America, there's probably two major competing stories about who we are as a nation and how we got here. Um, and we saw those two stories. This is when this became really clear to me was in the aftermath of the 2016 mm-hmm. election. You saw those two stories competing in that election. One story says there was a time when we were great, and it was a time when white men ruled, yeah. and we have to get back to that time. And I know that they didn't they didn't expressly explicitly say it was a time when white men ruled but through all of the rhetoric that's actually implicit right and when i went i actually went to the republican convention hello somebody mm-hmm. yes i did i was out there actually with the nuns on the bus <laughs> i remember you telling me that yeah right so i was out there and and we did these surveys and one of the things we asked them was okay so if there was a time you want to go back to what when was it great and by and large what they said was before the new deal. 
Oh, interesting. Before the New Deal is what they want to get back to. And what what was true then? Before the New Deal, we didn't really have taxes. Before the New Deal, mm. we didn't have a sense in America of a common good. We didn't have actually even a national sense of of responsibility for for the polis. We just it was like, you know, they, you know, everybody's for themselves. That's what they want to go back to. Yeah. And that was, that was the time when white men ruled also because the laws themselves were set up to benefit white men. Right. Remember that's before Brown versus the board of education, which sure. required equal treatment under the law. So, so what you have is you actually have, um, one narrative that says it's those days when we were great and we're trying to get back to that. And then you have another competing narrative that actually looks back and it's usually this one is, has the people at the, of, of color and women at the center. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, actually, there's never been a time we've been all that great. Right. We have great ideals. We have great vision. But even that has been contested. And and we are an ever ever um, progressing um, nation that is growing more and more into its own stated ideals. And so that was that that's what um, that's why the word progressive is progressive. It means to progress toward our own ideals. That's actually what it's stating. And so that ideal of every person being created with and endowed um, with the right to um, pursue happiness and liberty and, and all that stuff, right? Like that's, that, that we know, uh, I know in my DNA and in my family, that was not always the case. And actually to this day is not fully the case, but it's more the case than it was before. So that narrative gap is the gap at least in today's moment, the gap between those two narratives. Yes. Yeah. That narrative gap. So what is your strategy? Uh, Of course you're one, you're one voice, but in your world, this is, this is the influence that you're stewarding and this is the leadership you're offering. What, what's your strategy to close that gap? There is nothing more powerful in this world than narrative. Mm -hmm. Narrative shapes worldview. The stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves shapes our worldview. And I think we have to tell more accurate stories. And and we have to we have to center at this point in our history, given the fact that these voices have been marginalized for so long, we now have to push to the center those whose stories have been silenced Mm -hmm. and those whose stories have been pushed on the margins and not seen as important. Those are the stories that are actually most important right now. They are. They're most important because it's those stories that will help us to see the things we haven't ever seen. It's those stories that will help us to understand to a deeper degree how we got where we are and how we got here. Hmm. And in fact, that's actually my next book, which is coming up. Hopefully, we're praying that it comes out in early 2021. Yeah. And it, it, my my prayer is that it's the answer to what next after this election. Hmm. Now, how do we fix it? Hmm. I can't wait. Uh, Picking up the thread of something that you just said about centering the stories that the greater culture finds the least important, but rather those those who listen to, I'm something that I would love to hear you speak into a little bit, especially as we turn into this year. And I'm thinking so much about Iran. I'm thinking so much about Iraq. I'm thinking about the Middle East. These people that live there are very much um, a useful tool in the hands of reelection when they are 
seen in a certain way and they are cast in a certain light. And there's this, yeah. this very broad dehumanization and thus um, they become a real resource yeah. for um, fueling fear and paranoia and disinformation. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and then ultimately, of course, as you know, that has a real devastating trickle down effect on all immigrants, on all refugees. The state of Texas just said, we will refuse refugees. That just came out last week. Refuse them. We're the only state. It's horrible. It's horrible. And so, and and the Middle East is is a springboard for a lot of that ideology. And so- as we watch escalation over there right now and don't know what's going to happen. I mean, as of this recording, it's, it's murky. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to hear you talk about how we as Americans can rightly think of our brothers and sisters in Iran, in Iraq, in the Middle East, um, in these places of conflict and chaos. Um, and what is it, what, what does the call of Christ ask us to do here? The call of Christ calls us to focus and center the stories of the people of Iran and Iraq. We have to hear them tell their story. Mm -hmm. And when we do, when we listen, what we will understand is that their story does not begin with us. Their story actually began thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's actually their story is where our biblical story begins because our biblical story begins in Iraq. That's right. <laughs> it actually begins in that land and also in the in the in northern Africa. So it's it's I mean literally Babylon as it as it has been called, you know, as well Babylon from uh, Genesis, that was that I think that was like Baghdad. Like it was literally in that area. Now that's an, it was an empire. It was one of the first empires on earth was right there. And so, and we see that in the biblical text. So we know that their story is not dependent on us. They have a life, they have story, they have, they have culture, that they have arts, they have intellect um, that was developed apart from the West and before the West actually. And so it is incumbent upon us to see them as fully human in and of themselves. Um, what Dr. Andrea Smith says in her in her paper, um, uh, the three pillars of white supremacy, which you should link to in the show notes here. So I'm giving you a little little tidbit. She, I recommend everybody read it. For me, this has become a seminal text of understanding the moment we're in and how how white supremacy is operating in this moment on our borders and as we look at Iran and Iraq. She says there are three major logics of white supremacy. The first major logic as 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 um, white supremacy looks at the other as as it looks at people of African descent. What it says is they exist in order to provide us with low cost or no cost labor for the thriving of whiteness, for white thriving, right? So that's why you get slavery. That's how you get Jim Crow. That's how you get mass incarceration. That's how you get the Labor Act of 1935 um, uh, exempting um, farm workers, which were mostly black at the time, and uh, uh, hospitality workers, for example, maids and things like that, from labor protections, because white supremacy cast people of African descent as be- existing 
for the thriving of white people. And that in order for them, for people to thrive, you need a low cost labor um, uh, pool. So that's that's one. But then it looks over at Middle Easterners and, and Asian people and says, they are almost fully human, but not quite. Hmm. So they are our competition. They need to be dominated at all costs at all times. So you always see them in a perpetual state of war with, with the self, with whiteness. And so you have to dominate them in order to keep yourself up. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The reality is folks who live in Iraq and Iran and Pakistan and in Northern Africa and all over, they are human. Yeah. And they have human stories and mothers and babies and nieces and dreams and failures and best practices and culture and and mores and and all of the same stuff that is all as valid. That's good. As valid as anybody else. And and so they too were called to exercise stewardship of this world. But the thing is, now now you also have to look at history because in order to have an honest interrogation of the story we've been told, we have to be willing to look at the story we've been told. And what we were told, what we've been told is that Iran and Iraq are our enemies, period. Right. But that's not true. Did you know in 1953, Iran actually had elected its own democratically elected president, that they were actually on the road to having a solid democracy, but that in our book would destabilize our interests, which would be bilking their oil. And so mm, what we right. did, we went in with our CIA. This is this is not conspiracy theory. This is fact. Mm. And we replaced that president with the Shah of Iran. And the Shah of Iran was a brutal, brutal dictator who absolutely bilked their, his own people for his own thriving and crushed his people. And the Shah of Iran is what actually then brought us the hostage crisis in 1979 um, and the taking over the America and American embassy because the people there knew what we did and they knew that we were, we were responsible for their pain. And so they, they pushed back at us because that's what we deserved. Hmm. And it's, it's that moment in history in 1979 that is indelibly, you know, seared in our collective national memory and causes us to think of as Iran as our perpetual enemy. But we have to see what they did in the context of what we did. Hmm. And that's what we normally leave out. So hmm. what, we, what would help is, boy, what if we all just repented for believing that we should have a say in their government? And their governance. I mean, all the talk that's happening right now, should we, should we overturn their, their nation or not? Should we do nation building there or not? Can you believe we're, we are actually having in our public discourse, a conversation about whether or not America should take out their leaders? Mm. That is insane. Mm. They are sovereign nation. And yeah, we don't necessarily like necessarily all of the ways that they that they would run their nation, but that's why they're not us. We are us. They are them. We need to let them be them and mm. then deal with the world accordingly. Mm. Thank you for speaking into that very complicated narrative gap, really, is what it is. When we talk about um, shrinking the narrative gap, 
at, at Freedom Road, we do that in five ways. There are five major ways. One is just through consulting. We actually come in and we help organizations to begin to, to see the places where they are operating out of their narrative gap. Mm-hmm. And we close it for them in various ways and then help them to move forward accordingly. We also do coaching, executive coaching, whatever. But the most potent way is through pilgrimage. And you know, you've heard me talk right. about this a yeah. lot. But pilgrimage gives us the opportunity to immerse ourselves in the story of the other for a period of time and walk the land where things happen so that no longer is it a question of where or when. We know because we have had resonance with the people. We have, our bodies have felt their pain. And so now it becomes ours. We carry their story in another way. So then we make better decisions. Our decisions are based now, not only on our own understanding, what we've been told, but also incorporating their story as well. That's, I think, how we, how we close the narrative gap. Mm. We, we, we put ourselves in closer proximity and in fact, immerse ourselves in the stories and the communities of the other mm. so that, um, at, and that is an act of connection so that we can all move forward together. Mm. You and I did something like that in Montgomery yes. when we yes. were down with um, Brian Stevenson and EJI and we walked the yes. lynching sites yes. and we prayed and we took the soil and we blessed the ground. And I mean, I'll never forget it as long as I live. It made such a huge impact on me, to your point. You that's don't, so true. If that's not just head knowledge, then my, my body has experienced it. And so yeah. I couldn't, couldn't uh, recommend your pilgrimages more. Uh, they say that glasses make the woman. Well, I mean, I don't really know if they say that. But I know, and you know, that I love my Warby Parker glasses. Warby Parker has the coolest frames, top-notch quality. Their glasses start at only $95. That includes the prescription lenses with anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And to find your pair, all you have to do is go to their site and answer a handful of quick questions. Like I've taken their quiz. It's super easy and super fast. I think I have four pairs of Warbys um, because I like how they, I like how they fit my look. To order your free, of course, at-home try-on, that's five pairs of glasses to try for five days with a zero obligation to buy, free shipping, free returns. Head to warbyparker.com slash for the love and then take the quiz to find your very perfect glasses today. So one more time, that's warbyparker.com slash for the love to order your free at-home try-on. Oh, and newsflash... The wizards at Warby Parker are rolling out a new product called Scout by Warby Parker. And they are comfortable, breathable, and affordable daily contact lenses. Contact lenses! They're made from this super moist material that resists drying so your eyes stay hydrated and comfy all day. I can usually only wear contacts for about six or seven hours. And so this is everything I've been waiting for. So you can order a trial pack that includes six days of contacts for only, are you ready for this? Five bucks. And then you'll receive five bucks off your next Warby Parker order. So you can learn more about Scout contact lenses at warbyparker.com slash for the love. Hey, back to our show. 
Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about let's shift in a little bit closer to sort of our faith community. Um, it's kind of impossible to think about faith in a way that isn't political this year. I don't know if that ever was a thing, but, um, and you mentioned earlier the Christianity Today editorial. And for listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, essentially after many years of basically silence, um, the the lead editor, right? Lead editor, am I getting that right? Editor in chief. Editor in Thank chief. Thank you. I couldn't find it. Yeah, editor in Mark chief. Galley. That's right. Mm-hmm. Wrote a pretty, I mean, as direct a piece I've ever read, mm-hmm. um, calling out sort of the evil and the immorality of this administration. And it it created a lot of uh, shockwaves. Um, of course, five years ago, it would have been unprecedented. I think, um, that we would have seen such a, uh, a, a pillar in the evangelical community. And that's not to say that represents Christ followers at large. Of course, it's, that's a version. That's a, that's a, that's a branch of the tree. Um, but I would like to hear you talk about how we got here, how Mm. it is that the word evangelical has now become synonymous, of course, with Republican. That's, that's baked in at this point. And, um, I, I read a quote by an African-American pastor and um, theologian, uh, Howard Thurman. He said, yeah. it cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful mm-hmm. against the weak and oppressed. This, yeah. despite the gospel. And it's yeah. so, I mean, that just like, boom, just cuts right to the heart of it, which is yeah. so ironic, giving our conversation earlier, that scripture was written by oppressed people for oppressed people. So it doesn't yes. even make sense. It, it has, yes. there's no basis here. It makes absolutely no sense that all of a sudden we now leverage our, not just our ideology, not just our politics, our faith yeah. against yeah. the immigrant, against the refugee, against people of color, against the LGBTQ community. And it just, it boggles the mind how we got here. Can you walk us through a bit of that? Well, whenever you have a faith that has been crafted in, in the halls of empire, which is what happened here, basically Jesus was hijacked and whiteified and um, and dumbed down. And actually his message then was was nullified to the point where it had absolutely no, it, it said nothing about what empire was doing. I mean, you could see that so clearly. There was literally, literally a moment when this, the question of what does our faith have to do with our politics came up in 1671. <laughs> 16. Now, why do I know this? Because again, for the next book, I'm doing family history and I'm actually going through like all the, um, like 10 generations of my family and asking how did we get here? Right. And so I look back at the very first generation that got here and they came the first, my first ancestors that came here came in 1682 and they were from, they were um, Scotch Irish. They were actually, um, uh, Ulster Scots, right? So I'm not going to go into that whole story, but what I will say is what I found in my research is that there was a time when the race laws were being crafted here. That determination was, was based 100% on money, Hmm. on the money and filling the pockets of the people who were the legislators themselves. And you knew that that, that money was then trumping faith when they made a determination that 
um, after, I mean, thousands or at least a thousand years of common law in England that they, you could not enslave a fellow Christian, hmm. but those, but enslaved Christian people in Virginia began to fight their case in court and say, um, hello, Mr. Legislator, uh, I've been baptized. Uh, I should not mm. be able to be enslaved. And oh, also, by the way, my father is an English citizen mm. <laughs> because, mm. you know, he raped my mom. And so here I am. Mm. And because he's an English citizen, according to common law in England, I cannot be enslaved. And he baptized me. Uh, and then the courts began to say, you know what, you're kind of right. And they, be mm. they began to release these people. And there were lots of people who began to go to the courts and fight this these, on the basis of these two things, the first of whom was Elizabeth Key in Virginia, and then several after that. Well, they started to say, wait a minute, this is going to threaten our, what, our base of no-cost labor. So yeah. what did they do? That's the moment that they racialized slavery in 1670. Mm. And when they did that, they also changed the law and said, the status of your Christian identity has no bearing on whether or not you can be enslaved from that point forward, right? So, so right there, the legislature in a, in a, in a land um, that would become the place that, that says that we all have the right to freedom says they change faith. Like they were all devout people in their faith. They were deacons, they were pastors, they were but they decided that based on their economic standing, that they wanted to maintain their economic standing. So they were willing to enslave their fellow brother and sister in Christ. Mm. So, so our, our faith, when your faith is formed in the halls of empire, then your faith becomes complicit with, with, the, with the intentions and the goals and the mechanisms of empire, which God warns his people, her people, will enslave. It, it will exploit yep. your own people because that's what it takes to build empire, period. That's, right. that's, just, that's what it takes. So when your faith is, is, is crafted there, that's what it's going to get you. And that's what it got us. And that's what got us the moral majority, right? In 1983, when they came to rise, they didn't just come out of the blue. And they certainly didn't come just out of the Roe v. Wade movement, though that's what they would have you believe. Right. They literally rose out of, the de out of the segregationist movement because they lost the case of Bob Jones versus the USA in 1983 in the Supreme Court. And that case was based on a title that had been changed, based on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was based on or, or stood on the foundation of Brown versus the Board of Education, which guaranteed equal representation, equal protection of the law. And so it was that, the equal protection of the law and, um, and the, the threat that that offered to white space that um, Jim Baker and, and all of the folks, moral majority, quote, moral majority, were fighting against. So, so how we get here? We get here because we finally come to a moment where the, the, the spin of 1983 forward um, was uh, that the leaders put in place was, hey, we have built a movement around um, that, that actually could uh, 
funnel more people, particularly Southerners who are now disenfranchised because they mm. can no longer be Democrat because the Democrats were for the Civil Rights Act right. and the Voting Rights Act. And they left the Democratic Party after having that be their party forever before right. that. Right, right. But now they're looking for a party. Well, let's let the Republican Party be the party of the disenfranchised Southern Democrats. And so they, they came in. And when they said, our goal is to overturn the Supreme Court, our goal is to make the Supreme Court a conservative court. You know that resonated with them. They said, oh, yes, that's what we need to do. And it wasn't because of Roe v. Wade, because only a few years before that, the Southern Baptist Convention had issued a statement saying that Roe v. Wade was actually a good decision. That's right. How about that? that? Yeah. It, it said it was a good decision. And yet now Southerners are rising up and saying, we need to overturn the Supreme Court. Why? Because the Supreme Court was protecting Brown versus the Board of Education. But they couldn't fight on that basis anymore. That was not gauche. It wasn't in. It wasn't going to win. And it couldn't win in the courts as, as the Supreme Court had just shown them because they lost Bob Jones, the Bob Jones case. So they said, wait a minute, there's this sentiment now shifting in the wind. The nation is now turning against Roe v. Wade because they're seeing that there's all these abortions happening now. Let's leverage that issue to do the same thing. Let's, let's say Roe v. Wade is our goal, but, our, but our, our strategy for overturning Roe v. Wade is to overturn the court, to make the court a conservative court. What will we get when we do that? We will get the overturning of Roe v. Wade and Brown versus the Board of Education. Mm. Well, it worked. <laughs> it did. It really it did. It worked. It feels overwhelming, to be honest. And everything that you're describing has been a real lived experience. I mean, it's silly for me to say just in recent history, obviously, but very acute since 2016. You know, so incredibly yeah. acute, as you mentioned yeah. earlier. And for those I would actually of- say, I would actually say, I'd go back and I'd say since 2014. Yeah. That, that when George Zimmerman was mm, um, yeah, was let right. off and to actually right. 2013 and then Michael Brown died yeah, that's kind right. of when the when the world started to turn upside down you're but, right. but keep keep going you're 100% right i that is really when i felt the tremors yeah um, in a in a way that i hadn't before and that obviously speaks to my like privilege and position but something something turned a corner there and and for for those of us in faith it has I don't quite know how to word it except to say that it has been so, um, for those of us who see the world through a a lens that just says, God, these are our neighbors, you know, these are our brothers and sisters and, um, and, and and we're looking for collective good and we are looking for how can I vote, um, to on behalf of and in honor of my neighbor and just that it's a completely different way of thinking. And which, uh, you know, of course I would say that's what literally Jesus taught me. I I, I do not mean that as a virtue signal. I just simply mean that's all I've ever been taught. And yeah. so I, it's, it's profoundly disorienting and, mm-hmm. and has created so much disruption in yeah. our families and in our communities, definitely in our churches. And, and, and what I experience, um, when I'm, you know, engaged in a, either a discussion or a space or I- even a debate, if we want to use that term, um, uh, around, another Christian who mm-hmm. sees, sees things from, as you mentioned, that side of conserving, 
that we yeah. want to conserve. We want to make make her make America great again, which is a version yeah. of their great. Um, That's right. They, I, I would, I, and I mean this from a charitable standpoint. I, I believe that they deeply believe what they are saying. Deeply, yeah. that yeah. they find it faithful. Yeah. And that they they say that God is on our side, you know that kind of language. Oh yeah, and, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a correct reading of the gospel, and um, and 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 they've put up up some bumpers around it that are impenetrable, and so it's like this unimpe- yeah. unimpeachable position, mm-hmm. and it just it feels. Um, well, I hate to use this word this often because I'm not really like this. It feels a little hopeless. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder if yeah. you think there is a path forward here um, in wow. the community of faith specifically, um, which obviously follows the fault lines of our, you know, country's cultural lines. But mm-hmm. do you do you see a path right now? So I think that what's happening now is that there is a disintegration of that empirical center. And there is now what's happening is, honestly, it's creating space. It's creating space for everyone to go, to push into the scripture, push past the veneer of whiteness, the the cushion of whiteness that has actually separated us from the scripture itself. And touch brown Jesus and sit at the feet of black Mary and understand what they were actually saying in the context of oppression, all of every last one of them, all of them were speaking from the ground with the weight of empire's foot on their neck. All of them. And when Jesus shows up in Luke 4 and says, I have come, he quotes Isaiah 61 and says, I've been anointed to preach good news to whom? Not to the middle class. And he's not preaching this at Starbucks. He is in, he's literally in Nazareth. He's in the the bottom of the bottom. That's right. Of of the empire. His foot is not only under the neck of empire, he's been stamped down in the year that he, think about this, in the year that Jesus was born, 2,000 people were crucified in one day in his region, yeah, well. in Northern Galilee, because they attempted an uprising against white empire, against Caesar. And Caesar came in and stamped them down. And there was, so when he stood up in that temple, when he stood up in that synagogue and, and he said, The Lord has anointed me to uh, um, preach good news to the oppressed, to set the prisoners free. He's not talking about people who stole a loaf of bread. He's talking about the people who were put in prison because they tried to uprise against Caesar. Hmm. It's powerful. That's what. So when we when we become reconnected to the actual scripture in its actual context, then I think we will be able to see anew 
what this Christianity thing is all about, what, who this Jesus person is all about. And I honestly think we all need it, all of us. Mm, I agree. And to that end, like back to my earlier question, is there a path forward to such polar opposite versions of what yeah. faith looks like in the public square? You know, yeah. to, to, my, to your answer, I feel like that can, be no, that can be interpreted no other way except good news. If what it ultimately yes. does is shake it out, if it does, if it just shakes it down and it's all yeah. smaller and it yes. looks different and it's decentralized, yes. well, how that's good news. That's yes. good. It's going to be good news for the poor. That's going to be good news for the oppressed. And so I hope that in my, I hope that at the core of what I hope to be faithful, that I can hang on to that, that that's worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, no matter how different that ends up looking, what kind of, and I think it is always, it's in front of us right now, changing in front of our eyes. Um, well, I think, let me just say this. I think this is important, Jen, that I think that the good news for people who have lived on the upside of empire, who have actually lived positioned on the scaffolding of human hierarchy of belonging, mm-hmm. that they have literally been placed higher up on that scaffolding yeah. because they have been deemed white by the state or right. male, right, by the right. state. Right. And so as a result, they get the privileges that were afforded them because of the laws that were established in 1660. Mm-hmm. Like the good news for them is that when that scaffolding comes down, you get to join the community of creation. That's great. You get to lay down your arms against God. You get to come and join hands with people who that scaffolding and the laws that protected it named as less than human. Mm-hmm. And you get to see them and see the truth and see that you are allowed to only be human. Just be human. Mm. Y'all don't got to be perfect. Mm. Anybody asking you to be perfect? Mm. God, the only God is perfect. God's not trying to be perfect too. So that, that, even that theology, the pure, you know, the, the, the focus on purity, the focus on perfection, that's something that came out of Europe. Hmm. That's something that y'all look at that y'all looked at that in scripture and said, "Oh, that's what this is all about." But actually, no, that's not what it was all about. That's not what the people, the Hebrew people, were focused on. But th- that's what it was made to be about, because it, when you read it in your context up in Northern Europe, that's what mattered to you. And maybe that's it mattered to you because of of the the pagan rituals of of pure purification and everything that came and that got synchronized into into Jesus. Hello, somebody. What am I saying? Mm. I'm saying that we all need new glasses and that those new glasses are going to do two things. They're going to connect us to God, mm. and they're going to connect us to each other in that's a way. Great never experienced before. And that's this moment, this moment, more than any other moment, I think in human history, gives us the capacity for if we Mm. choose, if we choose the good news. Mm. That's a good word, sis. This is a big year for me, and I am really interested in my own health. I'm realizing that I'm 45 and I'm like, let me treat my body with care. 
let me treat it like the good partner that it is. And I've talked about this before because it's been such a useful tool for me, but it's Noom. It's an app. It's the easy thing. Noom. I'm saying N-O-O-M, by the way. They help me track. They help me pay attention. They help me be mindful of what I'm doing. The principles at Noom, they're based on psychology. And that just is working for me because I don't constantly feel shamed or weird or disappointed or whatever the thing is that comes with diet culture. It's just a different sort of system. It uses our own brains to to work on behalf of our own health. I've had a lot of good experiences with Noom. I've used them for months. Um, For me, I think one of the key elements that it has assisted me in is moving my body. I type for a living and talking to a microphone. And Noom has all these great, great resources. So I'm like, oh, you know, even just I'm up for 10 minutes. I'm going to do, I'm going to take, it makes me feel so much better. Um, and so I've, I've noticed my energy level increasing and my stress level decreasing because obviously our health has a huge impact on the way we feel. So here's the deal to sign up for your trial. Just go to noom.com. Again, that's N O O M noom.com slash for the love. So one more time, that's noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash for the love. And you can start your trial today. I'm telling you, do it for you. Um, Do it for health. Do it for longevity. So noom.com for the love, you guys. All right, back to our show. Let's wrap it up here. We're going to land this plane. I'm just going to ask you three questions we're asking everybody in this series and just kind of top of your head. Uh, this okay. first one, you probably have more than one answer, so you can just pick one. Okay. Who is, who's one of your biggest mentors in faith? Oh, wow. Um, one of my biggest mentors in faith would be Brenda Salter McNeil. Yes, she's amazing. Who, yeah. Who, she is in many ways my big sis or my auntie, depending on the mm. day. Yeah. <laughs> and um, she's literally, literally been a mentor of mine for about 20 years mm. and was one of the very first people, because I was on my way, literally, I was on my way to Broadway. Um, my my play won a national award and pushed mm. the wind down. And people were saying, Broadway, Broadway. God said, no, I want nope. you to go into the ministry. And mm. she was one of the first people to pray over me and actually, oh. Oh. you know, kind of set me on a path to listen and I listen like for the voice of God. And so, and, and she, her, her preaching is, is what taught me to preach and Mm. her love for scripture is what calls me to back to the scripture every time that there is no more high value. There's no higher value rather, um, in preaching than to bring the scripture to life. That's great. There is because the the scripture does it. We don't need, Mm. we don't need much more. It's if we can bring the scripture to life, then we've done our work. Mm. Um, so she's, she's been a, Probably one of my most long time and most valuable mentors. And we'll link over to her stuff, everybody listening, because she is absolutely worth following and paying attention to and learning from. Um, Here's one right now, currently, or just whatever. Do you have a question for God? If you could ask him something. Um, I would, (laughs) uh, the reason I I laugh is because I'm like, well, I think my main question would be, um, God, how do we get patriarchy? Ah. Like how how did that happen? How, and and I think I, would, hmm. I you know because I I laugh because I think you said how 
you know, what would you, or what would you ask him? And I think Mm -hmm. my first thing would be just to change. I would say, what would you ask her? Mm. I really am, but I am actually, and I don't know, I don't mean this physically, but I believe that God is a black woman. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean by that? I mean, black women are at the bottom of everything, right? And Mm. and Jesus said, unless you love the least of these who are my family and you have not loved me. And I think that what you have to do is you have to ask the question, who's on the bottom? Yeah, in the human hierarchy of belonging in America, it has been Af- women of African descent mm. who have been on the very bottom of our human hierarchy, mm. um, and so I think I think that God positioned God's self as on the bottom, and um, and we see that even in Philippians, right, where it says that Jesus came and did not cease striving to be God, something that Jesus did, even became a slave, yeah. even unto death on the cross, and so. I think God is a black woman. So I don't, mm. so my question to God, mm. how'd this happen? Yeah. How'd mm-hmm. this happen? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I kind of want to change it. It okay. would be how do we get out of this. Oh, <laughs> uh, even better. Oh, yeah, please let me know if he gets back to you. Like yeah. if you get a, a missive on that one, I'd like to hear about it. Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Here's the last one. I asked you this last time you were on the show. We ask everybody this, this final, final question, and you can answer it literally however you want to answer it. Whatever's true right now. Um, what is saving your life right now? Oh my gosh. I think what's saving my life right now are two things. One is family. Mm. So I just came from LA where my mom and my sister and my niece live and my friends and everything. And I think being connected to people whom I love, who love me, that Mm. is saving my life. Oh, it means so much. It really does. And I mean, I think, and and it's in the same vein. I I'm part of a new small group that has started here in LA. It's when I'm sorry, in LA, in DC, mm-hmm. and it's not formal. We haven't advertised. There's no. It's just a group of friends that are that are sick of wandering, and mm-hmm. we we realize where we're coming together on a regular basis. Anyway, we may as well just make this a formal thing and come together and pray for each other oh, and I share love it. Right. And share mm. our lives with each other and, um, and pray and offer counsel from scripture or yeah. from life. Yeah. Um, and, and so in some ways it's like a little house church, but it's not a church. We're not, we're not delusional to think that, but, but it, we are being church to each other. And oh, that, that makes my heart sing. Yeah. Those are my lifelines also. Um, mm. those are the one, these are the, those are the things that keep me safe and loved and from, and then from that point strong, yeah. you know, you, at that point you can operate out of strength and courage and conviction. Um, and it doesn't take a lot, but just a handful of people that, you know, you can, oh, 100%, yeah. all your shoulders can drop down. There's yep. no guard, absolutely no guard. Exactly. Um, beloved. And they're going to be there. Uh, no matter. Yep. Uh, means the world. Um, and I would add to that project yeah. runway. <laughs> oh, uh, yay. Oh, good. Oh, one tiny so little fun. shallow thing. Thank you. Totally. We need, we need the fluff. Everybody needs a little bit of cotton candy in their life. <laughs> just a little bit. I literally sat with my best girlfriends, kind of like the ones you just described last Monday night. And we watched, I could not make this number up three straight hours of the bachelor. Like who? <laughs> what are we doing? What are we doing? You did you watch it? I was yeah, just watching yeah. it last night. Oh yeah, girl. Yeah, That's, it's like serious cotton candy and a very absolutely cool ridiculous. Sometimes I, mean, I feel guilty for consuming that much, but hey. <laughs> That's I was kind of a but hey day, and I was like, you know what? This is what. Pour me some wine. Let's just watch this absurdity. Oh, I totally um, did that. Yep. So real quick, before I let you go, I just again I want to from the 
from the bottom of my heart, thank you for your leadership in the world and what it has meant to me. And it's been such a, uh, an honor for me to get to walk alongside of you and work alongside of you now. And, uh, every single time you and I talk, every single time I hear you teach every single time we sort of circle around the same thing, I'm learn, I'm stretched. I am challenged. You say something every time I've never thought of every single time. Um, you bring up perspectives that I need to hear and, I feel really grateful that you're one of my teachers right now. And I mean that sincerely. And so I, I honor your work in the world. And I want you to know that the cost of it is not at all lost on me. Not at all. I, I see the, the toll, the, the, this sort of labor um, in exacts, and you are specially gifted for it. Honestly, Lisa, for me to watch you lead and go, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to obviously do it in my own way, in my place, mm-hmm. the way God's made me. But that, those, the pillars that you hang on to and the way in which you do it instructs me and I'm learning from it. So wow. thank you I'm for, helpful. thank you for your time again today. Thank you for leading us and teaching us. Um, we're listening, we're paying attention. Um, we, we, we are not a people without hope. And so thank you for all the places you reminded me today that we have hope Mm -hmm. and that goodness finds a way to rise up. It does. Um, And so sending you all the love in the world, my friend, and (laughs) grateful for your time today. Thank you so much, Jen, for the love, right? For the love. For the love. Well, I told you that we were going to go to church. I wasn't kidding. It's like being in the room with like a prophet and a preacher And well, that is what it is. Not like that is what it is. And you know what? Let me say this. As we press into such, such space filled with trauma and, and complicated history with competing narratives, if, if there's something in there that makes you feel discomfort, I say you just sit with that. Discomfort is not the end of the world. For me, discomfort, it's always the beginning of growth. Um, And so if that's you, great. I, I would, I would urge you just to sit with it and let it be what it is. Pay attention to what is rising up in you. Look it in the eye. Figure out what is this in me? What is this? What's the response? What is my emotion? Um, How can I sort of lean into it instead of just react? That has always been how I have grown. Always. It begins with learning something new that for me typically means unlearning something. And it's the unlearning that's uncomfortable. And so it's just a part of the work. This is a part of, of, of working toward a just and a fair world. And so um, I love teachers who make me sort of sit in my own discomfort. Um, maybe not at first, but ultimately I'm grateful for their leadership and grateful for their expertise to show me what I didn't know, to teach me what I didn't understand, to give me the experience and the perspective and the history that I have to have in hand uh, in order to be a good leader in this world. And so anyway... Boy, she, she is a good teacher, isn't she? I'm really grateful for her time today. Grateful she came on again. As always, over at jenhatmaker.com, we will have everything. We'll have the transcript in case you want to read some of this or cut and paste any of it or whatever. Um, links to all of Lisa's socials and her books and, her, and Freedom Road. And, and if you want any information about her pilgrimages. Um, and we'll have it all over there for you guys. So... Uh, on behalf of Amanda and Laura and I and our podcast team, we love you. We love to serve you. We're happy to bring these 
stretching conversations and people (laughs) to the podcast community. And thank you for being such good listeners and so engaged and paying such good and close attention. I'm always just so proud of you. Hey guys, see you next week. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.